Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Healthcare Maze podcast. The goal of this podcast is to assist patients and their providers through the complexity of our healthcare system. We want to interact with our listeners during this podcast and have established an email address for your comments and suggestions. You can reach us at the healthcare maze at gmail.com. My name is Mike McLafferty, and I have over 30 years of healthcare industry experience. Our goal is to educate and assist all of our listeners. In this second episode, we're going to conclude the overview of the U.S. healthcare system. We're going to focus on the following topics the organization of the system, how healthcare providers are paid, major strategies to improve the quality of care, the effort to reduce disparities, system integration and care coordination, the status of electronic healthcare records, containing the cost of care, and major innovations and reforms. First, let's talk about how the system is organized. Physicians are educated through medical schools and about 59% of those schools are public. The tuition fees annually for medical schools that are public was about $39,000 a year. However, if you went to a private medical school, it would cost over $60,000 a year. About 73% of medical school graduates have medical debt averaging about $200,000. Most of the recent data shows that about 50% of medical school graduates are now choosing to be employees versus going into independent physician practices. Let's talk about the different types of physician organizations. The one most of us are familiar with is primary care. Usually that involves family medicine, general practice, internal medicine, pediatrics, and geriatrics. About one third of all professionally active physicians are primary care doctors. As of 2018, about 47% of physicians working as employees compared to 45% that were owners, and about 7% of physicians working as independent contractors. Since 2012, about 7% more physicians are employed versus working in their own practices. This is according to the American Medical Association. Specialists can also work in various settings, usually typically in private practices or in hospitals. A lot of them are integrating into hospital systems and with each other. The majority of specialists are still in group practices. Most of them are in single specialty group practices. Physicians are paid through a combination of methods, negotiated fees for private insurance, capitation, and administrative fees that are set at the state and local government level. Patients get involved in making co-pays, 
or deductibles with most health insurance plans. These are put in place not only to keep costs down, but to try to control utilization of services. Physicians and hospitals, in order to get paid for their services, have to issue claims to insurance companies. The services listed on these claims have to be coded appropriately. There are thousands of these codes. So healthcare organizations have hired coding and billing staff to assist them to get paid. You might be surprised to learn that physicians are not required to provide after-hours access for their patients. However, as of 2019, 45% of primary care doctors have after-hour arrangements. 38% of the after-hour arrangements are in the evening, and 41% are the Whenever a physician organization decides to extend the hours, whether they be evening or weekends, patients quickly fill those appointments. These are especially popular among working adults. According to the American Hospital Association in 2021, there is approximately 5,400 community hospitals in the country. Almost 3,000 of them are not-for-profit. About 1,200 are for-profit. And over 900 are state and local government. There is also over 200 federal government hospitals and 600 non-federal psychiatric hospitals. Hospitals and physicians are free to choose what insurance they are willing to accept. However, most of them will accept Medicare and Medicaid. For hospitals, Medicare is, makes payments based on what is called a diagnosis-related group rate. Medicaid paid on a combination of a diagnosis-related group rate, a per diem rate, or cost reimbursement. The reason Medicaid has a number of different payment options for hospitals is because the states have a lot of discretion on how they want to set hospital rates. Private insurers typically pay hospitals on a per diem rate. Most private insurers will pay physicians on some sort of a set rate per service. There are usually negotiations that take place with payers hospitals, and physicians on an annual basis to determine the reimbursement for a new year. Mental health services are provided by generalists and specialists. This includes primary care physicians, psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, and nurses. Most of the services provided for mental health are in an outpatient setting. Most of the providers are nonprofit and for-profit private organizations. The Veterans Administration and Federally Qualified Health Centers are the majority of public providers. One of the benefits for mental health service coverage was when the Affordable Care Act mandated that insurers in the marketplace provide coverage for mental health and substance abuse conditions as an essential health benefit.
Public spending represents approximately 70% of total spending on long-term care services. The majority of spending each year for long-term care is from Medicaid. Medicare and other private insurance plans will pay up to 100 days following an acute hospitalization. Long-term care insurance is very expensive. Few people have purchased these policies and they only represent approximately 7.5% of the total annual health care spending for long-term care. The Department of Health and Human Services has established a national quality strategy. Each year, the Healthcare Research and Quality Agency publishes an annual report. As of 2019, the quality of care overall has improved from 2000 to 2018, but the improvement was somewhat inconsistent. Most person-centered care and patient safety measures improved, but only two or five of the affordability measures improved. This is a trend that has been seen over the last five to 10 years. The quality of care has improved, but the cost factor has usually increased. There is an effort to reduce disparities of care among different groups of people in the country. The latest report as of 2019 shows that the different disparities have been reduced between 2000 and 2018. The income and race gap has gotten smaller. African Americans, American Indians, Alaska Natives, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders receive worse care for about 40% of quality measures. Hispanics and Asian Americans receive worse care for about 30% of quality measures. And these disparities continue for poor and uninsured populations. The Affordable Care Act required nonprofit hospitals to conduct annual community health needs assessments together with community stakeholders to try to identify and address any unmet health needs in their communities. This requirement is enforced through the Internal Revenue Service. Annual reports must be made to the public. The Affordable Care Act has introduced several levers to improve system integration and the coordination of care. In a largely specialized driven healthcare system, the adoption of a patient-centered medical home model emphasizes care, continuity, and coordination via primary care, as well as evidence-based care, expanded access and prevention, and chronic care management. These patient-centered medical home models have been very successful in improving the quality of care. The challenge has been in most cases that there has not been a reduction in the cost of care. The Affordable Care Act has also expanded the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services ability to evaluate alternative payment models that reward quality, reduce costs, and aim to improve care coordination. 
As of 2017, the Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology estimates 96% of non-federal acute care hospitals and 86% of office-based physicians have adopted a certified electronic health record system. 80% of hospitals and 54% of physician offices have adopted an electronic health record system with advanced capabilities, such as the ability to track patient demographics, keep a list of medications, store clinician notes, and track medication orders. We've seen over the last five years that a majority of providers have adopted electronic health records. Now let's talk about efforts to contain the cost of care. This is an important issue because it frequently becomes the main issue to expanding coverage to the uninsured. The annual per capita healthcare expenditure in the US is the highest in the world. The average cost is approximately $11,582 per person based on a 2019 Medicare and Medicaid study. Costs continue to grow between 4.2 and 5.8% annually over the last five years. To help control some of these costs, private insurers have introduced several levers. They have tiered pricing, increased patient cost sharing, which we have seen in the form of high deductible plans, price negotiations with providers. They're very selective on which providers they want to contract with. They encourage risk sharing payments and utilization controls. The federal government tries to control costs by setting rates for Medicare and the Veterans Administration, providing capitated payments to Medicaid and Medicare managed care organizations. They cap out-of-pocket fees for beneficiaries in Medicare Advantage plans. And also any patients that are enrolled in the marketplace exchange plans. They'll negotiate drug prices for the Veterans Health Administration as a group. Even though the federal government is making all these efforts, most Americans have private health insurance. So there are limits to the impact that the federal government can have on cost. One of the key levers that the Affordable Care Act placed on private insurance companies is that if they plan to significantly increase their premiums for a year, they have to submit those rates to either the state or federal government for review before the rates can go into effect. State governments try to control costs by regulating the private health insurers. They set the Medicaid provider fees, they develop preferred drug lists, and they negotiate lower prices in general. Similar to the Veterans and Health Administration, states have negotiated on behalf of all Medicaid beneficiaries and have gotten lower prices for pharmaceuticals. The prices for pharmaceuticals in our country is expensive 
and continue to increase significantly. Drug prices in our country are high compared to other countries around the world. Private health plans for prescription drugs are typically based on formularies. There always are negotiations taking place on rebates for the volume of drugs being used and also prior authorization for drugs that are very expensive. The Veterans Health Administration typically gets a minimum 24% discount from non-federal average manufacturer price and they can negotiate deeper discounts because they're negotiating as a group. Medicaid is also legally entitled to a discounted price and they can further negotiate discounts beyond the minimum. Medicare is the largest buyer of prescription drugs in the U.S., but does not negotiate drug costs as a group. Medicare hopefully will be given the ability by Congress to negotiate directly with the pharmaceutical firms. This should lead to a cost reduction for all Medicare members. The last section we want to talk about today is innovations and reforms for Medicare and Medicaid. The Affordable Care Act allocated about $10 billion over 10 years so that research and development could be conducted with the goal of continuing to improve the quality of care for Medicare and Medicaid members. The ideal situation is to increase quality and reduce cost. If a new initiative is developed where Medicare and Medicaid can show it's improving quality and reducing costs, the Secretary of Health and Human Services can actually start to utilize these initiatives without going back to Congress for approval. Self-insured employers have been making efforts for years to try to reduce costs, typically by trying to eliminate any middlemen in the process. Thanks for listening to the second episode of our podcast. This episode concludes the overview of the U.S. healthcare system. Our next episode will start our discussion of patients who have healthcare insurance and those who are uninsured. Please remember to leave your comments and suggestions at our email address, thehealthcaremaze at gmail.com.